Hello, and welcome to the Small World Podcast. In today's episode, I spoke with Hallie Crane, who's the founder of I Major in Eating, a blog determined to teach you how to experience different parts of the world through their food. Hallie has been passionate about food since she was a kid, and I'm glad that I got a chance to understand a bit more about food and culture around the world through hearing about her experiences. So, without further ado, let's get into it. I'll see you on the other side. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Holly. Nice to nice to be on, you guys. Yeah, perfect. Um, so why don't we just get started? Like, let's start. Let's start from the beginning because I'll I'll be honest. When I was uh, when I was looking around on my Instagram account, which I just generally do, I, I came across a fair amount of your pictures, and like all of them were were either you being somewhere in the world or food. Um, and that fascinated me because uh, it never, it never occurred to me to travel for the sake of food, which, which seems like an obvious thing I would say, but like for me, I didn't do it. So I'm wondering how you, you jumped into that in the first place. Like what got you into food? Yeah. Um, well, food has kind of just been the center of my life since day one. I mean, quite literally my, um, (laughs) My dad, when I was really, really little, like a toddler, would actually take me to the grocery store if I was having like a meltdown or a tantrum because it was the only place that calmed me down. Um, when I was five years old, I asked for a creme brulee torch for my birthday. And um, growing up, I never really watched kids shows. I just was glued to the Food Network. Um, I called Emeril Lagasse the Bam Man. And I, uh, I just was always fascinated by food, always thinking about food, always talking about food. Um, And for most of my kind of just upbringing, although I came from a very non-food focused family, I would just find ways to get involved in um, with food and, you know, either by cooking or by exploring restaurants or, you know, through TV. Um, And then when I started traveling, um, I started doing my solo backpacking in like 2014. Mm-hmm. I started seeing, understanding how food plays a role within cultures, like different cultures other than my own, and how I could learn about people and places through their cuisines and through their gastronomy. Right. So I started taking these like foodcations essentially where um and mind you I was working um I've been working in the food industry since I was 14 or 15 and um I was always working to make money so I could go on these on these trips um and I would mostly you know I would be looking at historical sites like whether that be in Israel or Southeast Asia or South America and I would be you know going on all the amazing hikes but really what I was there for was, was for the food. I, uh, I did food crawls in every city I went to and, um, t- spent a lot of time at, uh, farmer's markets and started kind of developing my own, you know, understanding of different cultures just through the way that people were eating and through the way people were selling food, way people are serving and talking about food. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, now it's kind of just become the center of my life. <laughs> like, you know, Full, full throttle. Yeah. So I, I have a question there when it comes to, uh, to, you know, different, different cultures and different foods. I think one thing that, that people tend to, to talk about uh, when it comes to different foods is, of course, different recipes and different ingredients used in these recipes and so on and so forth. Um, I remember my first experience personally, I, when I was with a friend of mine, maybe when I was eight or so, and I was over at his house and his, his whole family's Bengali. And, uh, when we were eating, they just didn't use utensils at all. Like it was just eat, use, using their hands to eat and everything. Um, and that was, that was really new for me. <laughs> it was uh, really new. And it really made me understand that, you know, food culture is not just about the different ways of cooking. It's about how the norms around eating, um, who you eat with and things like that. So what are some interesting norms or, or things like that that you've noticed going on your foodcations. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, what I really love is looking into food ceremonies and the way that food plays a role within religious ceremonies. Um, 
that's, I mean, I come from a Jewish family, so food has been extremely important um, and is extremely important in the Jewish culture. Mm-hmm. Um, although I'm not religious per, per se, I'm culturally involved. Like I go to Delhi and I, you know, celebrate the high holidays through eating, essentially. Um, so I always grew up with that. But when I was traveling, I loved looking at meal times. And so, for instance, in Prague, it's more common to go out for lunch than dinner. And people usually go out for lunch. All of the restaurants offer these low-cost, relatively low-cost um, lunch menus called mm-hmm. Poledni menus. And everyone gets, you know, an hour for lunch, essentially, um, to go out to eat. And people don't really go out to dinner that much, uh, So, which is kind of the opposite of my experience back in the U S um, I think that's pretty interesting, but also in like in Vietnam, uh, eating together is, is super important. So, um, whenever the family can get together, it might not be a set meal time, but whenever the family can get together, they do, and they sit and they, and they eat family style. And in, you know, in Israel, the Israeli breakfast is kind of, this amazing smorgasbord of like different salads and savory dishes and sweet dishes um, and really a a huge, nice, hearty meal to kind of to start your day. In, you know, in South America, when I was in Argentina, looking at how barbecue like parillas is is such an important part, like asado is such an important part of of the culture, having these big, big barbecues um, where people really come together and they spend time outside. And I just, I've always loved the way that people gather together for mealtimes. And it's interesting that, you know, we think that meals should be, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You have breakfast at 7 a.m., you have lunch at noon, you have dinner at 7. Um, I love seeing differences around the world because we don't all, we don't all live like that. And just the way, same way you're talking about utensils, like to see how people value different drinks, like in South America, mate tea is passed around. Um, there's, that's a very ceremonial like ritual. Um, and in, in Turkey, like Turkish coffee is, is super important in Czech Republic. Beer culture is super important. And just these like little, these little things that maybe might not seem that important to the folks who are living there, but are actually so, so interesting um, to me. Street food culture, for instance, got me really, really hard when I was in um, Southeast Asia. Like just being able to sit on the side of the road and have a giant bowl of amazing pho for for a dollar at any time of day um and there are always folks you know local folks eating there too like street food is not just for the tourists unless you are of course in some maybe like kosan road or something um but but i i really love kind of seeing seeing the creativity that comes with with meal times, with group versus individual eating, um, and then also religious and ceremonial stuff as well. Was there any place where you you noticed a higher breadth of, of individual eating versus group eating? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I definitely think the U.S. is right. probably the number one in that. Uh, you know, what I think is kind of interesting is in the U.S. you'll always see people eating and walking at the same time Mm -hmm. or also eating in their cars and I don't really see that in other places in the world. Um, I mean that of course is because people just don't have a lot of time to eat. Um, Besides that I can't think of anything else based on individuals. The reason I ask that is because like I know for my family from from me being from a baby till maybe I was 10 or so, we ate together quite a bit. And then it just sort of disappeared. We we all started building our own lives. Like my oldest brother started working. So did my sisters. You know, even now we don't really eat together and we have to really make an effort to do it. For example, like when I, when I was studying abroad in other places, we made it a point to eat together because eating together was how we got to know each other. So I just, I find that distinction interesting between the two between individual eating and like and group eating. Yeah, I think the value is just really really different um in North America versus a lot of the rest of the world. I mean, my experience is more in the US for North America, but I don't see a lot of value based on um 
group dining. And, and there is a very clear value based on group dining in, in Europe and, and especially in, um, and also in, in South America. I, I think it just has to do with time and people would rather, you know, be, be working and be making money. And that is totally fine. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, I was living in New York city and what I thought was really interesting was New York city is like the capital of these fast, casual chain restaurants, like, like sweet green or Chipotle or, you know, these, these cafeteria style restaurants which are specifically designed for individual eating, right? So you are in line by yourself. You order your food. It's, it's ready immediately. You sit down by yourself and it's kind of, you're in and out in 20 minutes. You don't find those kind of places in a lot of other parts of the world. Um, probably because people, you know, would, would be missing out on that, that communal aspect. I mean, even in Prague, I rarely can find just a bar that you can eat at when, or, you know, like where I'm sitting by myself and I can eat dinner, which is kind of a disappointment sometimes. Cause it, I do like eating alone actually sometimes, but in, in New York and in LA, I could always go to a restaurant and there was a bar. There's always a bar set up somewhere in the restaurant where individuals can go sit and eat their dinner, but you can't really find that in Europe and you can't really find that in other parts of the world because people want to eat together and they want to chat and they want to talk about either the day or the food or whatever, you know, is, is a topic of discussion. And, and that's something that was actually very, very new to me when I, when I finally left the U.S. And that was a really a breath of fresh air, honestly. I like to see it. See, I was going to ask about that because I was going to say like, you know, growing up for you, were, were you in the position where you did eat together um, as, a, as a family? But <laughs> just said, I'm guessing not. No, not at all. I mean, uh, I like I said, I came from a kind of non-food family. Uh, you know, my my dad um, was a partial stay-at-home dad, and he uh, did what he could, but didn't really have a culinary background. But we we ate a lot of kids' cuisines. I don't know if you have those yeah. in Can- in Canada, but they're we call them we call them blue boxes because they're these blue box TV dinners, usually featuring some assortment of mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and a brownie. Oh, yeah. um, and you know, we we lived off of those Eggo waffles and Carnation instant breakfasts, um, and and that was the vast majority of, of my upbringing, there, there wasn't really, there wasn't values put on it. You know, there wasn't, I wasn't brought up in, in a home where, um, there was a fabulous cook where we all sat, sat down and, and, and experienced that together. But, but, you know, we had other things we had, <laughs> I was by no means a deprived child. I had an amazing, amazing childhood. Yeah. Um, but I actually don't know a whole lot of people who, who did grow up with that kind of traditional, I say that in quotations, um, sense of that, that traditional family eats together every night type thing. It's just, it's difficult. It's difficult to do in the U.S. when when parents are, you know, working and, and kids have their after school programs and um, just, you know, we all want to fit as much as we possibly can into a day. And that means sometimes that food comes you know, a little bit lower on the totem pole. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's obvious when you, when you think about it um, from that perspective, because, you know, even not even just the time, it's also the quickness in which it can be made. Like with my mom, she, she was a stay at home mom for, for like the first 10 years of my, of my life. And she would spend time cooking us uh, dinners, really like cooking the whole family at dinner, uh, but, but breakfast and lunch, same thing, Eggo waffles, Aunt Jemima's syrup, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and like, uh, what's it called? Lunchables. Like, uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, those pizzas. Like, but, that's like, good stuff. It was, I can't lie. Like, it was, it was delicious. And it was, it's nostalgic, you know? I, it, I, I think that's funny to me personally because so many people are like, yeah, like, there's nothing that beats home cooking. And, and it's true. But it's not like those other frozen foods and stuff that we ate were so, bad they were convenient and they were tasty enough that we were we were able to like live off of it and survive so yeah yeah they were, they were considered 
you know, kind of the, the cure to, 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 to everything. I mean, to our parents getting jobs and, you know, if we go back to industrial revolution and, um, the industrialized food system, like Mm -hmm. that allowed actually women to get out of the kitchen and go work and pursue their dreams. And, and these canned foods or frozen foods or, you know, any of these partially made meals were really an amazing blessing because that meant people could go live their lives. And I, and I see that. And I, what I, what I really love now is that there actually seems to be a movement in finding ways of keeping that kind of the essence of the goal of the goals of that food. Like, mm-hmm. um, the, the goal was to, you know, to give, to give parents and, and families back time. Right. Um, so now all these meal kits and like, like Blue Apron or HelloFresh are, are giving people that option again, I think, in a nice, more updated way with fresh ingredients. And in many ways, I think those meal kits are kind of like, the, I guess, the millennial version of, of the TV dinner. Right. Um, and I'm happy to see that because I think it's allowing a lot of people to learn about cooking, but also do it in a quicker way, like a 30-minute meal type thing. And it, it seems to be actually working for a lot of my friends and the folks that I know who have used it. So it's, I, I think we're kind of moving in a really nice direction after years of learning about, you know, time and food and, and meal times. No, I agree. And it's funny you bring up like HelloFresh and stuff like that, because I feel like I've learned a bit about how to cook from it. Um, I, I cooked a few things or ordered a few boxes where I cooked a few things. And there's still some recipes to this day that I use, even when I just buy my own ingredients from the grocery store. It's it's simplistic and it taught me something new. So I, I see nothing but like real positivity coming from that. And I, I like also like the fact that you, you compared it to like it being the new school TV dinner, which is really i didn't think of it like that it's it's kind of true yeah totally yeah um so i want to rewind a bit to uh to to childhood again because i know you were talking about like <laughs> watching emerald lagasse and stuff and getting a, a sorry you i want to i want to be clear on this did you you asked for a creme brulee torch did you did you actually get it when you were five <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. Okay. I can't. Rem- I can't remember. I'll have to phone phone a friend. I'll, I'll phone my mom right. after this, and I will ask. I'm I'm sure that I probably did get it, but hopefully under uh, supervision only. But it meant so much to you from that point in your life. Like it sounds like your parents are pretty empowering of that aspect of your life. Um, yeah. What What do you recall from from those days? Like when when you had that, those opportunities, like, did you get opportunities to, to cook meals for your family and things like that and kind of experiment? You know, honestly, I, I didn't, I probably didn't as much as maybe I, I wanted to, because again, we just had different schedules, but I, I remember my, my parents had put me into a summer camp that focused on um, arts, and one of the one of the what the workshops was a cooking class, and I was super appreciative to be able to be exposed to that. Mm-hmm. My mom kind of found opportunities for me to learn about cooking. There's a there's a a cooking supply store called or a cookware supply store called Sir La Tab, and they have cooking classes. And I I remember taking one when I was maybe like twelve or something, wow. and my mom would would take me to restaurants and I would just be so excited about, you know, menus and, and how to order and tasting new things. And there was never anything off limits for me. And what's interesting is I, uh, something that is difficult for me to, um, kind of accept is that I, I've always had a really poor memory and just, just in general, Uh, some people have great memories and some people don't and I, I don't, but when it comes to food, I seem to be able to recall things about food from from childhood. And I, I can't remember maybe who I was with or even where I was, but I can remember what I was eating and I can remember the smell of something. Right. And I I can evoke memory through, through smell and taste um, really, really, really well. And it's I, that dawned on me at a pretty early age. 
actually. And, and that made me realize that maybe this was something really, really special for me because I can remember a recipe or, or a skill or something. And that, and I remember my parents did really kind of honor that for me. There was, there was never this, you know, there was never a lot of pushback. They were super excited that I had identified a passion mm-hmm. pretty young and they've really always supported me in it. And and there was definitely a period of time I remember in college when I was trying to figure out, do I just pursue food as a hobby? Do I just kind of give it up as a career and just call it a hobby and kind of just move on? But that's when I discovered this uh, amazing, amazing a food critic named Jonathan Gold, who mm-hmm. recently, uh, he passed away about a year ago. And um, he was the he was the Pulitzer Prize winning food critic for the LA Weekly and then the LA Times. And he had a show on NPR called Good Food with Evan Kleinman. And I distinctly remember driving around Los Angeles in my dad's old expedition, mm-hmm. listening to Good Food whatever we could and just being so like so captivated by it by the way he talked about food and and kind of from that moment discovering him and discovering other writings by like Ruth Reichel and and Anthony Bourdain of course i i wanted to be a food writer and i wanted to talk about food because i wanted other people to get as excited about food as i was right. because i just I just think it's the best thing ever. And I think anyone, no matter what their field is, no matter what their passion is, can connect whatever they're doing to the food industry and to the food system um, and to food culture. So my parents definitely supported me a lot in that. And, you know, my I, I tend to have a somewhat good knack for writing. So it, it seemed to be the obvious nice combination between the two between food and writing. So being a food writer has always been my dream. And, you know, I'm, I'm slowly like trying to make that happen and be a reality. Um, but that's actually what kind of led me to where I am today. That was, I know ne- I never wanted to really be a chef, although I loved cooking. Mm-hmm. I knew that I wanted to do something that could maybe affect a more people, a wider range of folks. And I thought that writing could kind of just communicate that a little bit easier than working in a kitchen, in a kitchen. Uh, Although I have extreme respect for everyone who works in a kitchen. It's the hardest job in the world. But yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm, where I'm at or how I got to where I am, I guess today. Yeah. I mean, from, from the way you're talking about, uh, you know, food and the food industry and the, the, the other cultures that you've experienced in relation to food, it feels to me like, like, and maybe this is my own conclusion, but it feels to me like the North American treatment of food is really underrating the importance of food, just because of like the 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 the, the quickness in which it's made and the the kind of the lack of community around eating. Of course, it doesn't apply to everybody, but I mean, like, um, for the people that, the people it does apply to, and it's not to say like it's a negative thing, but you know, cooking, for example. Uh, for me, for actually funny story, like for me, I didn't cook anything when I moved on my own until maybe like six months in. And I just Uber eats everything because it was easy. It was so convenient. It was just there. And I didn't want to go through the trouble of cleaning and, and finding the right ingredients and so on and so forth. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I'm getting that. I'm coming to that conclusion myself and maybe, maybe I'm not looking at it the the right way but i was wondering what you like thought about that specifically that like food is underrated in north american culture yeah i well i mean sometimes people say there's no authentic american food and i think that's totally false there's so many amazing amazing food traditions that come out of the u.s mm-hmm. like southern barbecue like right you know italian like like also like Italian American cuisine, like chicken parm and subs and pizza and and Mexican Californian food, like or even Tex Mex also, you know, burritos, um, sushi in America, or um, all the amazing fusions that have come out, like Korean tacos. Like there is so m- I I really actually love the way that North America is starting to really value food. I think in kind of the 80s and 90s there wasn't 
there wasn't a lot of, like I said, there wasn't just a lot of time and consideration spent, I think, on on innovating in the food system. Right. Um, and, and, and sorry, and also in just in the food industry. And that also was combined a lot, I think, um, Americans. And, you know, this is not a widespread kind of um, speech, but like, there seems to be a lot of anxiety and fear around eating. We have all of these diets that have come out, you know, and from the Atkins diet to Whole30 and keto and all of these um, like food restrictions that a lot of folks back home from where I am from are really, really focused on. And um, I don't seem to see those food restrictions elsewhere in the world. I, I see a lot of people who learn about how food makes them feel. I live with a Croatian roommate and we, you know, she, the way that she eats is, is really fascinating to me because she really just listens to her body. If some, if she's full, she stops eating, you know? Um, and in the U S I, I think a lot of people think they have to finish what's on their plate because they, you know, they don't want to take the doggy bag or something, or they're restricting themselves from things that they want because they want to be smaller. You know, um, that is definitely a kind of a big thing from about like in, in Los Angeles, um, where I'm from. Uh, and, and I think that kind of influences a lot of, a lot of the way that, that people are cooking and the way that people are, just spending time towards food. I mean, the thing is for me, food was always therapeutic and cooking is my number one therapy. I, I, I do like suffer from some level of chronic anxiety and the same way that my dad used to take me to the supermarket when I was having a tantrum, I still do that. I still take myself to a supermarket if I'm having a bad day mm-hmm. or I, I, you know, I make, I make a meal for myself and it's the most therapeutic just stress-free kind of activity, but I didn't know anyone who, who took cooking classes, you know, in school or were exposed to any kind of food education or were really exposed to any kind of nutrition education growing up. And I think that's changing a little bit where just people are becoming more informed about nutrition and, you know, some myths are being debunked, but for a long time we came out with a new, or in America, at least, there was a new diet like every year that it's people were, were following. You're right. The relationship with food is interesting um, all over the world. And for me, like personally, I, oof, I've had my own relationship with food, generally speaking. And I, I know I'm not the only one, but like I, when I feel bad, I tend to go to food and eat food to make me feel better. And it, in the long term, it doesn't, but, um, but it's comforting. It's, it's something that, that, that comforts me, especially like kind of like high fatty, um, like heavy kind of foods. I'll do it if I'm bored. I'll do it if I'm, if I'm feeling down. And on the other side, like at points when I've, I've experienced anxiety, I've like completely avoided food where like I can't stomach food at all, but I don't hear about that, um, that often when I'm traveling specifically he, in, in Canada and the United States, I hear about it a lot. Like I hear about people with similar issues um, who are going through similar things, but either it's not talked about a lot abroad or it's, it's just not as common of a thing. And for me, I just wonder why. Yeah, I've definitely noticed that uh, throughout all, pretty much all of my travels. Um, I just see people enjoying food. They are definitely enjoying it, but they're just enjoying it in moderation. And and like I said, they're listening to their bodies. And I realized we aren't really taught how to listen to our bodies. And we aren't really taught about, you know, food locality. And, you know, obviously you shouldn't be buying tomatoes in the winter. And, oh, was that obvious? You know, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, tomatoes are, are, are a summer crop. But, um, and any, any, you know, even though you're seeing the tomatoes in the supermarket, um, they most likely are, you know, coming in from another part of the world, you know, they're, they're not ripe yet. They might be sprayed. There's, I mean, there's a whole, that's a whole other conversation though. That is a, that's a food system, right. argue, like huge argument, but, but I do notice people abroad, 
eating much more seasonally, eating much closer to their homes, more locality in their in their diets. And then they're also eating things that are more traditional to their cultures. So in the US, we are so lucky that we have access to all these different cuisines. I mean, I grew up eating sushi, Indian, Ethiopian, um, Italian, Korean, you, you name it. You know, I had access to everything, which is really, really amazing. Um, but not everyone around the world has that. Actually, most most people in the world just eat the food of their culture, right? So they know it really, really, really well. And they know what foods to eat w- during what time of year. They know what foods to eat when they're feeling full of energy or they're not feeling or they, you know, they need a little boost or they know what foods to eat when they're going to be sitting in the office all day. And, you know, there's, there's a long history and there's, there's a lot of education actually around that because they're just focusing in their, their food culture, you know? And although we, you know, I'm so lucky that I've had the access to diversity, sometimes it's hard to, you know, know how many calories are in that bowl of pho or, you know, am I going to actually need that much food for what I'm doing today? Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. You know, I'm in Czech Republic right now where the majority of the dishes in the Czech Republic are based off of worker meals, meals that are meant to be hearty for folks who are working um, in the fields and factories and and we just don't need those heavy of meals anymore, right? Because we're, we're sitting in offices or we're sitting at school. So Czech folks, I think, understand that and are finding a nice balance between eating the traditional Czech foods and maybe, but it just in smaller quantities, you know, mm-hmm. not having that, that giant goulash with, with the dumplings at lunch, um, maybe having a, a smaller portion and, you know, with like a small soup or something. And I, and I think I see that a lot of chefs are also trying to lighten up the fare because, you know, they want to keep these traditions, but also modernize with the way the workforce is modernizing. Um, so in, in actually, it's in some ways, I think globalization in, in food brings a lot of challenges having to do with nutrition. And I've so I've, I've I've kind of seen that around the world. I wonder if there's an if there's like an advantage to only exposing yourself to one particular culture's type of food versus plenty because we we definitely have a um have that blessing really of, of being able to eat everything. Like on the main street close to me, I can eat Chinese dumplings, I can have Italian pizza, I can have um Indian food and I could have uh Montreal bagels all within the five minute walk. Like it's, there's all this choice yet. If I eat all of that, maybe I'm not getting the, the true essence of, of one culture's food. I don't yeah. know. I, I can't speak for that, but it's an interesting thought. And it kind of brings me into the next part of this, which is um, the, the travel aspect. Because I mean, of course, travel has a lot to do with, with food and vice versa. But what was your introduction to, traveling and and thus combining that love of of food with um with that exposure to traveling so in 2014 i was i was on my way to israel because we had some family friends that were living in tel aviv and i had a job lined up or an internship at a f- online food publication and this was all set up and that was also the summer when there was a lot of like political turmoil happening in Israel. I mean, there mm. kind of always there kind of always is, yeah. <laughs> but 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 kind of specifically in in Tel Aviv, which Tel Aviv is usually quite quite low key. Um, and I was on a flight from Berlin to Tel Aviv with a layover in Vienna. And the day of my flight, when I got to Vienna on my layover, um, I had found out that the uh, a bunch of flights had been canceled and there was some kind of issues happening in Tel Aviv. And so I wasn't able to complete my trip to Tel Aviv. So I was, I was stuck in Vienna. I, I had this, I, I only had shekels in my pocket and okay. which is the, which is like the Israeli currency. Mm-hmm. And um, I had this giant suitcase full of bikinis and I was like super excited for Tel Aviv and going, <laughs> and always like going out clothes. And I was, 
you know, I was really gearing up for, for that, for that trip. I had been to Tel Aviv once before. I kind of knew what the place was. Um, I didn't grow up in a super travel family, so I had never done any kind of solo travel. I had never done any kind of backpacking or really, I think I've, I think at that point I had only been to Canada possibly. Um, I think it was Canada. Yeah. So I, uh, I was stuck at Vienna airport. I remember calling my mom who just said, you know, just come home, you know, just come home and, 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 you know, we'll figure something out else out for your summer. But I was and I, and I actually didn't know what country Vienna was in. Truthfully, I did not know. I asked someone. I asked someone at the airport. Right. Truth, like, <laughs> that is the worst part of all of this. But um, so I, I kind of, I just decided, I don't even know how it really came to my mind. But I decided, you know, I have a bit of a savings. I'm just going to go use my savings to go backpack through Europe right now. Mm-hmm. I had never been in a hostel. I didn't really know about, you know, TripAdvisor or um, Hostel World or any of these applications that support travelers. Um, I had no idea what I was doing, but for the next two months, I started backpacking through Europe um, on this, you know, really amazing journey, uh, you know, very much, you know, finding myself and, Mm -hmm. and discovering places. But you know, I was going on all of the walking tours and I was going to see the churches and I was going to, like I said, see all the monuments, which are really, really interesting. And I really enjoy, but I kept realizing that I was kind of more excited about, about the food right. um, of each place. Like I was really just waiting until my next meal. And I was really just walking until I found the next bite. Um, you know, I was seeing those museums on the way to lunch and then on the way to a drink or a tea or something. And then it was just kind of on the way always. But I, I never really allowed it to be the main event until I think later trips. Um, but that, that was also the trip where I discovered food markets. And I remember going to La Bocaria um, in Barcelona, mm-hmm. this incredible food market, this, this beautiful um, super, I think it's like a hundred years old, um, uh, originally it was a produce and, and vegetable market just for locals. And now, now there's like tapas bars and there's still the produce, but there's little restaurants and stalls. And it's, it's a super beautiful, vibrant, colorful, delicious place. And I remember I was staying, I was staying at a hostel somewhat nearby and I went every, every day. I usually actually spent a few hours there each day I was in Barcelona. I think I was there for like four days. And after that food market, I only wanted to find food markets when I was traveling. So in in Berlin, I went to Makatalenoin, and um, in Amsterdam, I found a beautiful food market, and I just wanted to find these halls because that was that was like my walking tour. You know, I would go find the food hall on the first day I was there, and I would kind of get exposed to as many bits of that food culture as I could, and that would be my my basis of kind of that would build my my basic understanding of the place and then from there I would kind of talk to people and find out oh where should I go next are there any farmers markets I would always ask when are the farmers markets and then I would go to the farmers markets which were usually on like specific days and I had to wake up early um (laughs) it's funny because at the hostels the hostels you know notorious Sunday mornings everyone's kind of hung over and I was I was I remember it I was in Paris and it was 6 a.m. and I knew I had to get to the bakery to get the fresh croissant. So I, I woke up at 6 a.m. on both Saturday and Sunday morning to get a dozen croissants and bring them to the hostel because I just felt like everyone had to taste them. <laughs> Probably stepping um, over like zombies and things like that. Just people just hung over lying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, pretty much like yeah. this became, this became the reason why I was traveling. Right. And, and so I, you know, I just kind of kept doing that. Like when I went, um, that was my first trip. But then when I went to, uh, when I went to South America, you know, South America has this beautiful, um, hospitality kind of tradition. So I was in, I was in Argentina and I just got welcomed into people's homes for these big barbecues. And that was my, that was like my in, you know, I realized as long as I was nice and cared about other people's food, they would most of the time want to educate me about it. Like right. there seems to be this 
common connection that all, you know, all or, you know, most people have where everyone likes something about food. You know, you can, even if someone says they're the pickiest eater in the world, they don't really care about food. I can always guess that there's, there's something, there's something that, that they care about. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's a cocktail. Maybe it's, maybe it's even just a cereal. Maybe it's, it's, it's something that they are passionate about and maybe they're passionate about it because it connects to their, you know, their specific culture or their religion, or maybe just their childhood and nostalgia. Like food evokes so much nostalgia. So I started traveling to, to find people who would talk about food with me and talk about their food experiences with me. And then I would, and I would build these kind of roadmaps for myself of like, okay, where to go for the best paella or, you know, where to get the best falafel in, in, in Israel or, you know, the best, the best pizza in Naples. And, and I would, I would go on these little like hunts, like it'd be like a mystery show where I would try to really find where the best one is. And, and I was really just doing it for me though, because along the way I would meet these people and I would learn about the stories of, of recipes and, and also how these people may have connected to the recipes. So for me, these tours and these, these trips, these backpacking trips became more of this like historical, like this like history hunt. Um, but, and but with less having to do with like artifacts and more having to do with, with, with food being, being the center of it. And now I welcome it very much. Like I know when I'm going to go to a destination it's pretty much going to be about the food and I'm going to learn about the culture. I'm going to learn about everything I need to know just through that because I really believe in it. I believe that food holds all of that history, all of that information. You just have to kind of be passionate enough to, to be talking about it and, and searching for it. Yeah. The the relation with food, I mean, it's something everyone needs. Like no no person and the world can avoid food. It doesn't matter who, where you're from, like who you are, what culture you have. Like food is, food is the one. Well, food and water are the things that like bring us all together. I would say, and so it makes sense. It makes sense that that would that would be the case. And what a way to discover different cultures. What kind of things did you discover through through those travels about food and culture when you were like meeting people who were telling you about? Um, the tradition of, of their, their, their food culture or things like that? I think the first thing was people are just so excited to share food with, with people of other cultures. You know, even if you don't speak a word of the same language, folks are so excited. If you're, if you're at a little shack on the side of the road in Cambodia and you just, and you just make the motion of like, putting a spoon to your mouth, mm-hmm. you know, somebody will, will understand that and say, Oh, you have to go there. You know, like just point in that direction and you're going to find good food there, you know, and, and you should follow that. And I just, I noticed that, you know, once you just said once you just gave a good smile and said, you know, I'm here or you communicated in whatever way that you did, like whatever way I was doing, um, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn about your food. Mm-hmm. People were always so excited to teach me. Like I never ran into something where, you know, someone said, well, I don't know about that. Because like you say, I mean, everyone needs to eat. Everyone's got to eat, you know? So everyone has some experience with food. And, and like I said, because I've noticed people tend to have different value systems associated with, with dining, outside of North America, I was always so surprised and just excited about the way people were, people were, as, you know, people are, are as passionate about me about food. They are. It's, it's just that oftentimes they're passionate about like the cultures that they grew up with because they want people to experience how amazing it is, you know, because what you're, what you might get at, you know, a Czech restaurant here in Prague is, is, is different than what you're going to get from your grandmother's house. You know, it's, it's going to be better from grandma, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I, I just think there's a lot of, a lot of pride in food. People are prideful about their cultures and, um, you know, kind of like the nationalism that comes around food. People usually want to protect their recipes. They want to protect tradition. And, and, you know, it's difficult in this kind of day and age where, you know, big box and franchised 
food companies or, you know, Starbucks, whatever, like McDonald's are, are everywhere. So I think more than ever, people are trying to um, protect their food identity. Um, and, and I just want to do that by, you know, discovering things and, and, and communicating, communicating about those, those traditions to, to folks back home. If you could name one food experience or one experience in general that you've had going on a foodcation, that would be your favorite. What would that be? Well, there's so many, (laughs) um, (laughs) there's so many, but I think one that immediately comes to mind is I was in Uruguay maybe two years ago and I, uh, I got invited and my Spanish is extremely poor, but I got invited to this family's home for new year's Eve. And I remember everyone back at the hostel was having a big party and I, I just, I met this family and they, they invited me over and, um, we had this giant, giant, beautiful barbecue with homemade empanadas. Like I remember sitting in the kitchen and making empanadas with, you know, this family that I don't even, I don't even remember their names actually now, mm-hmm. but, but we, and, but it was amazing, you know, we were drinking pisco sours and piscolas, which is pisco and coca cola, and and sitting around and and just and kind of eating um, eating su- well eating super family style, which is always my preferred method of eating. You know, I I'm not even sure if there were really even plates. I think we were there was just a bunch of meat and empanadas in the center of a table outside in the backyard. There were children all around. Um, the whole family was there. Again, no one spoke English. My mm-hmm. Spanish is probably like a 101 level. But but we all just were eating. And, and they, you know, they could clearly see that I was super excited about the food. So they were just kind of passing me things. And here, try this and that. And I just, I didn't even know what I was having. But, but it was really, really, really fantastic. And I felt, I felt so safe. You know, people... People might hear that story and they're like, but why would you just go off with this family? You know, that's, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy. But I think, I think food, food tends to protect us a little bit too. Like if people are inviting you to come eat with them, like they're, they also want to protect you. They want you to be there and they want you to enjoy yourself. And there's not, there's not this sense of like, well, if you're coming over, you have to do this or mm-hmm. there's no strings. There's no strings attached with, with hospitality. And I've experienced that in other parts of the world where I've, I was in Northern Israel this past summer and, and got invited to a family's home and I was in Croatia as well. And I, I would just, I would get invited to experience people's food because they could see that I was just so excited about food. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know. And, you know, it feels good when someone's excited about something that you do. Yeah, because right. they are too, you know, like everyone is excited about food to some level. So, you know, even if you don't speak the same language, you can always connect through flavor and through just tasting things. Because when you do taste something, when you put that in your mouth, you're accepting that culture. Like you're showing that you respect that culture and that you want to learn more in like a very physical act, you know, like you're committing to it, you're putting it in your body. So I think when you, when you show someone that they, and even, you know, even if you will never see them again, they, they want to show you more most of the time. Totally. And, you know, I've had two experiences like that myself. Um, one in when I was living in Brussels and I, I didn't have an apartment or anything. Uh, I, 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 I was just eating noodles and eggs uh, every day, <laughs> literally. Like I would have that for breakfast and then something for dinner because I was trying to save money. And a friend there close to Christmas time, invited me over to his family's uh, place. And same exact type of story that you just mentioned. Um, Most of them, besides him, didn't speak any English. They all spoke French. But they were just happy to have me eating and happy to see me fed. Like, I think if there's any one way of really building bonds between people across cultures, it has to be food. I I can't think of a better way than that because – 
it's so important. And everyone, everyone goes hungry at a certain point. Absolutely. There's, yeah. Sorry. That, that got me a bit emotional because I was thinking about that. Time <laughs> and I was like, yeah, like it's, it's a little crazy, but at the same time, it's, it, it's heartwarming. It shows a vulnerability too. There was maybe like a long time where I would cook and I wouldn't want to share what I was making because I was afraid of what people would think of my cooking. Like, was it too salty? Was it like, like this guy doesn't know how to cook and, you know, things like that. And that worried me being judged on that. So it it shows some vulnerability as well to expose yourself, your entire culture and kind of <laughs> in a weird way, it's like putting that on your shoulders and saying like, hey, you're going to get introduced to, to Uruguayan culture through my food. Like this is going to be your first experience. So I hope you enjoy it. What are you doing now? Like, because <laughs> you mentioned Prague a few times. Um, yeah. And that's, I mean, at least to me, that's like not a common place where people just go in and live for like, just because, <laughs> right? So I'm, I'm wondering what you're doing over there. Right. Um, so I am completing my my master's degree. I'm getting my master's in food studies from NYU. That's New York University. And um, food studies, I'll give a little bit of a background on that, is kind of the overarching umbrella that includes all food scholarship outside of culinary arts. So chefs go to culinary school, right? But folks who want to learn about food and the like food systems and a food culture can come to this program and, and do so, um, in this really beautiful, um, multidimensional program where I was taking classes about like the history of beverages. I took, um, I took a wine tasting course. I took a, I took a food writing and a food marketing course. There's food entrepreneurship, you know, essentially, Think about whatever you studied in school. Um, there's a way to to learn about that subject through food. There always is. You know, there's food literature. There's there's food science. There's yeah. Um, you know, there's there's even food in performing arts. Like there's food connects everything, right? So I went into the program to focus in food media and and food writing because, like I said, that's kind of been this 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 goal of mine since I was a kid. And um, I came to Prague the, for the very first time on that backpacking trip. That one when I was in 2014 with the, with the big suitcase of bikinis. Yeah. Um, and I came to Prague and just fell in love with the city. I, I loved, I, you know, I come from a huge, huge sprawling city. Los Angeles is in many ways kind of like an urban planning disaster. Um, <laughs> and, and Prague... I thought was so wonderful because there's a city center. It's a, you know, it's an international city, but you could still walk across it in like 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, at least in like this, like kind of like the city, the city center area. So I fell in love with it that, that first time I then came back to Prague for my semester abroad in during my undergraduate degree, I got my, my bachelor's in urban and environmental policy. And I focused in food policy. Um, when I was here for my undergraduate degree, I landed an internship at Radio Prague, which is the Czech Broadcasting Agency. And during that time, I I had a weekly show on uh, on the on the radio about restaurants in Prague. So in many ways, this was like this was the first time I, you know, anyone had ever heard any of my food writing, and that included like all different kinds of food journalism, like not just restaurant reviews, but a lot of like cultural commentary and, and things that I found interesting. So I, I grew this love for this city because, you know, Prague, Prague, the Czech Republic is a really interesting place because um, communism fell in 1989, right? And during, during those years of communism, food was considered a source of fuel for the worker, right? Yeah. There was there was actually really one cookbook called the recipe for warm meals. All, all restaurants had to cook from this. Like all restaurants were standardized, right? They were owned by the government and all the dishes were the same size, the same price, the same recipes, you know, servers were all paid exactly the same, which is why there's really no incentive to do, to give good service because there was, there was no tipping culture. Right. Mm -hmm. And, 
since the fall of communism, though, Prague's food food industry has kind of exploded, right? Like, there's you can kind of get anything here now. Um, but this happened extremely quickly. Like, in the time between my first my first t- um, trip here and now, I mean, the, the food industry has taken a huge 180. In the last five years, like you know, just new cultures have come in. It seems like there's you know, at least 10 new restaurants kind of opening up every week. And, and Prague historically was, was actually a culinary capital of the Austro-Hungarian empire. It was kind of the center where French, Hungarian, and Austrian cuisines collided. And, and, um, and it was, it was a culinary city prior to Nazi occupation and then communism occupation. And and Czech cuisine is is extremely unique, I think, because it combines all these cultures but with little bits with little tweaks, you know, that that make it make it its own, make it make it Czech. Right. Um that's a long history of why I love the city, but when I was doing my master's degree, I um I it came time to choose a thesis topic and I was thinking about you know, all these trips I've gone on and, and what places I, I really wanted to focus on for my thesis. I really wanted to write about a place's food culture for my thesis. And I was awarded a research grant, um, a fellowship to come to Prague and to, to write something about, about this place. So, I mean, that's, yeah. Right. (laughs) I mean, yeah, not too bad. I mean, it was the first time I ever kind of won anything. So that was, that was pretty exciting. But it was also the first time, you know, so, someone kind of believed in me enough to wanting to, wanting to send me somewhere and, and really just pursue, pursue this. So what my project is doing is I am, um, or my research question is, how has Prague's communist past influenced its current restaurant industry? So I am speaking with chefs and food historians and food journalists and a variety of hospitality professionals to hear about their stories, their stories, maybe growing up during communism, maybe working during communism, Mm -hmm. their stories, opening up businesses now in a post-communist country, kind of figuring out what are the unique challenges that they face, because there's a lot of traditions from communism that still hold true today. I mean, you need to remember that during during communist times, food was cheap. Food right. was cheap because because the government controlled it. And and Prague didn't necessarily have like the bread lines that people kind of think of when they think of like Eastern European communism. And by the way, Czech Republic is not Eastern Europe, it's Central Europe, but a lot of people still call it Eastern Europe. So mm-hmm. um but actually, Czech Republic did have enough food. You know, there it was very difficult to get things like citrus and like bananas or anything that maybe just didn't grow here. But but for most of communism, food was cheap and and food was was actually pretty good quality because there wasn't there wasn't a lot of money to use pesticides. So what a lot of chefs are facing now is this really deep challenge of wanting to modernize. Um, this food industry and bring in good high quality food and bring in um, or at least bring back chefs because a lot of chefs left right. Czech Republic um, to, but to actually bring back chefs and get people excited about Czech cuisine and get people excited about building a food industry here but it's difficult to do that in a place where you know locals are used to just buying food cheaply you know you have to literally change a culture when you're looking at communism like like before I was, you know, a lot of people come to Czech Republic and the first thing they say is, oh gosh, the, the service culture here is just horrible. Just horrible. Right. And I, you know, the little anthropology or sociology person in me, or student in me, likes to say, well, well, there's a reason for that. You know, like there's always a reason for, for you know, those stereotypes, I guess, um, and those, and those traditions in that culture. And, and like I said before, you know, there really was no incentive to do any better. So, you know, why, why, why would the server kind of go above and beyond, you know, to give you this, this wonderful, 
service experience. I mean, that is definitely changing now. And that's the thing. That's why I'm so interested in the food industry in this city mm-hmm. is that it seems to be one of the most rapidly growing food industries in Europe. You know, it, it really came from a very, very closed off um, place with, with limited access to outside ideas and ingredients to what is now a very bustling, very vibrant food industry where I can get Vietnamese food, Japanese food. Um, there's actually a Taiwanese place that just opened around the corner. Yeah. I can get Mexican. I can get Italian. I can get Indian, you know, and this again is all within the last maybe five, six, seven years. Right. Um, so what I'm doing is I'm, I'm building a, a toolkit, a toolkit of recommendations for other hospitality professionals to come here and recommendations for how they might be most successful building businesses here. So this, this, this manual, this toolkit is going to include the background of this place, testimonials from, from current professionals, and then, and then these recommendations for how folks might be most successful coming here. I mean, the fact is like, you can get, you can get a space here. People will come eat it. Like, the, the the young generation of, of Czechs are are well traveled and they're super excited about new food cultures. So what I see it as is an excellent excellent place to come to and 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 start start a restaurant or or any kind of food business. Like I think a lot of other cities in Europe are quite oversaturated and and also what's interesting is is seeing how Czech cuisine like you go to you go to Berlin. And there's actually not that many German restaurants, you yeah, know. That's true. You, you go to, you can go to, um, you just you go to other places in Europe, and and there doesn't seem to be this like really strong attention towards the food of of that place. Like obviously, there like you go to Paris, you're gonna have French food. You know, yeah. you go to Italy, you're gonna have Italian food, but you cannot find Czech food anywhere else. You know. And to see Czech food really thriving in this city, a lot of chefs are coming here and, and bringing back like the French influence in Czech food or lightening those dishes or, you know, bringing, bringing like even a, a Vietnamese aspect to it, which by the way, Czech Republic has one of the highest Vietnamese populations in, in Europe because Vietnamese um, came here during communism to study and to also work. Um, because there was a partnership between the two communist governments. Oh, so wow. <laughs> there's a huge Vietnamese population here. And it wasn't until very, very recently that um, Czech folks and just the population here really honored that and grew grew a, a taste for that. So now we have some of the best Vietnamese food in, in Europe. Um, I would really say just some of the best outside of Vietnam. Um, so it's, it's a very, very unique culture. It's a very unique place in the world. It is a landlocked country, right? There's certain challenges that come with that, but it's also, it's kind of the land for like the best pork, like you'll ever get. Also some of the most like humanely raised pork you'll ever get. So the reason why I came here is because I just love this place. I see a lot of unique qualities about it. And I, and I'm building this manual to get people excited to come here and to, to make it thrive. Wow. It's, that sounds like so much information for a place that I wasn't, wasn't really in my mind to visit. I, I can't tell you why, but that sounds so much more like interesting now. <laughs> Plus like from the scenery I've seen and stuff there, this looks beautiful. So. It's also one of the cheapest places to go in Europe. Um, for travelers, it's an excellent choice. There's amazing schools here. Um, it's centrally located, so you can get around all of Europe super duper easily. It's really a, a very wonderful, wonderful place to live. Yeah, and, and to just come and visit. So definitely come on by. <laughs> well, I, I plan on it. But I have one more question for you. What lies in your future right now? Like, where? what's your next destination what's your what's your plan for the future starting today <laughs> well it's funny that you asked me that because my plan recently changed um i am actually leaving prague my fellowship ended and i am leaving prague in two weeks to return back to los angeles 
where I'm hoping to pursue a career in food marketing. The same way that I've told you, I just want to get people excited about food. I want people to get excited about small food businesses. And I want to support small food businesses that I believe in. And the best way I know how to support them is to use my writing skills towards, you know, comprehensive media and marketing strategies. So I plan on, you know, applying to some jobs in various food marketing fields, but but with with kind of a a social mission that um, a social and and sustainability mission that aligns with my own values. Right. So I mean that's very important to me. I do have a background in in food sustainability um, from my my undergraduate degree. So what I would like to see is at least for, I would like to see myself in a position where I'm supporting I'm supporting businesses. So I'm going back to Los Angeles and I'm super excited to to see the sunshine again every day and um, <laughs> to spend time with my family. And and then from there, you know, one day I think I, I want to open my own business. Mm-hmm. I would really, really love to run culinary tours. Okay. I really want to get people traveling for food. I think it's, it's a new, it's not a new way to travel. It's just a, it's another option to travel. Mm-hmm. So I want to support people doing that. So my kind of, you know, pie in the sky plan would be that I eventually build, build that food tourism company and give people access to unique destinations and itineraries and, and all of that. But that's, you know, that's a little bit down the line. So for now, Los Angeles and hopefully finding a job and being an adult somewhat. <laughs> <laughs> Are we ever yeah. really adults though? Like, I don't know. You know, <laughs> what does that even mean? I, I feel I like know. we're all just figuring out as we go along, but yes, I would be remiss to, uh, to ask you this, but how can we keep up with you? What can we do to, to make sure that we keep up with your writing to keep up with this, this food tourism idea? Cause honestly, that sounds like something I would do now for sure. <laughs> Yeah, well, um, you can follow me on Instagram at imajorineating, and I also have a blog that um, is the same name. It's imajorineating.com, and folks can also find my email on there and, you know, ask me any questions about destinations or anything that we've talked about today. Thank you. Thank you for being here, and um, I appreciate it. Go off and enjoy the rest of your day, and um, and or the rest of your evening, I should say. And once again, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Small World Podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe and listen to new and old episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your favorite podcast app is. Stay tuned for more as we dive into more stories of the world.